Hi, this is Perry Marshall, author of 8020 Sales and Marketing, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Everyone who's been in business for some time has heard of the 8020 principle, named after the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto, who observed over 100 years ago that 80% of effects can be attributed to 20% of causes. With a quick review of sales, you might find that 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your top accounts that 80% of software development comes from your top 20% of coders, or even what brings you 80% of your satisfaction in life comes from just 20% of activities. My next guest, Perry Marshall, author of 8020 Sales and Marketing, brings fresh insights to this discussion. He's studied with Richard Koch, written several best-selling books, and multiplied his own business many times over in over the past 15 years. He's known for looking with greater depth into business issues, as you'll hear in our interview where he bashes the misuse of averages and shares a graphic story of how to think about market segmentation illustrated by his friend's experience, John Paul Mendoza, who started his career as a Las Vegas poker player. It's an insightful and colorful discussion, and I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Perry Marshall. Perry has consulted over 300 industries. He's one of the most expensive business consultants in the world. His reinvention of the Pareto Principle is published by Harvard Business Review, NASA's JPL Jet Propulsion Labs at the California Institute of Technology uses his 80-20 curve as a productivity tool. An earlier work of his, The Ultimate Guide to Google AdWords, is the best-selling book on internet advertising across multiple channels. Perry has a degree in electrical engineering and lives in Chicago. Been friends with Perry for a number of years and I, I greatly appreciate you joining me here on the show today. He's here to talk about his latest book, 8020 Sales and Marketing, The Definitive Guide to Working Less and Making More. Welcome, Perry. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and good to talk to you again. It's been a little while, so we're gonna have a good time talking about things that big, uh, big doors swing on very small, all hinges, and uh, that's what eighty twenty is all about. And and it goes much deeper than I think most people realize. So we're gonna we're gonna dive in today. Excellent. So when you were growing up, Perry, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Thomas Edison. Uh, when I was in third grade, I had to do some kind of report for school and go research some kind of uh, you know person in the past, and and I became obsessed with the guy. And uh, I read his encyclopedia entry about 56 times. And I started, you know, building circuits with light bulbs and wires and batteries and taking apart flashlights. And uh, I wanted to be an inventor. People would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an inventor. So here we are. I, I do invent things just a little bit differently than I probably imagined back then. Well, you went more software than hardware for sure. And more, more conceptual than uh, objects and devices. Although, you know, I actually do some of that too, but, but it, it is fun to invent stuff and it's fun to take things apart and put them back together again and, and, and do it on a bunch of levels. Uh, my, I made my dad really angry when I was five years old because I wanted to see what the inside of his transistor radio looked like. So I busted it open with a hammer. He was he was not a happy boy when he came home, but it, the, the radio was really cool on the inside. I can tell you that. And it's, it's really interesting how your aspiration of being an 
character really does have strong, it carries through even today. You, you could see those connections. Really what I tend to do is reinvent things. Um, I tend to take things that other people already figured out and then go, hey, wait a minute. If you, if you use this this other way, it's a lot more powerful. In fact, that, that's exactly what I did with the 80-20 principle. I, I had this big epiphany where I realized, hey, wait a minute. Well, first of all, this isn't just some little rule of thumb that they might teach you in a business class that just happens to be true about real estate and sales. It's true about almost everything. It's true. It's a universal law of cause and effect, and it's recursive. There's an 80-20 inside every 80-20, and then another one and another one. And I, I realized that nobody was representing this in a graphical way where people could really easily understand it. And so that's what I did. When you introduced me, you talked about something getting published in Harvard Business Review, and that's what I'm talking about. And, you know, less people like glaze over and go oh that's boring like well not this you know I whatever it is whatever you think about Harvard Business Review um, th this is really really practical and a lot of people are using this literally every single day to, to figure out where um, gaps exist in their business where they're leaving money on the table um, how to do price structuring and lots of other things so there's a lot of pretty cool stories. So let's dive into one or two. In the last week, how have you used, as one example, have you used 80-20 and how has one of your students or clients used it? Well, just on Friday, I had a consultation with a guy from Dallas and he consults with fairly sizable financial institutions and he uses 80-20 to identify holes in their client base. A, an institution might have people that have invested $10,000 and other people that invested 100,000 and other people that invested a million. And 80-20 tells you exactly how many you should have at every level. And he uses it to identify holes. So in other words, he can look at a financial institution and say, you only have 20 people who've invested between half a million and a million dollars and based on all of your other client profiles, you actually should have 50 or 60. And, and you'll know that with certainty. And he'll actually be able to compare their, the success of different strata with each other. So we call it the invisible money finder. In fact, that's a chapter in my book, 8020 Sales and Marketing. Or a more simple way of putting it would be if Starbucks has a thousand people a week who buy a $5 latte is pretty much guaranteed that one of those people will buy a $2,700 espresso machine. And it's not uh, immediately obvious that a thousand people buying lattes would translate into one espresso machine for uh, what, you know, 500 times more money, but that's exactly uh, what is the case. And so people in large numbers are extremely predictable. And if they're not, not doing what the formula predicts, it means there's something wrong. It, it probably means there's a, a salesperson not doing their job, or there is an advertisement that it hasn't been written correctly, or there's a promotion or an offer that's not resonating with, with the market, because these patterns are incredibly reliable. So if I could just summarize, what you're saying is that 
this, um, the person, the guy in Chicago, I'm sorry, the guy in Dallas is using it to form models that are predictive. And he could look at and analyze a customer base and identify where there are gaps and then focus additional energy on filling those gaps because he's looking to optimize towards some level of profitability, some level of efficiency in the business, some level of fulfilling a, a multi-step process that works only if you have people satisfied at, at each of these different levels. And it could be used in that way to analyze and predict um, business models so you know where to direct your attention. Is that in essence where where's you? Yeah, that, that that's exactly right. The Pareto principle has mostly only been used as a rear view mirror. So, for example, Pareto a hundred years ago, uh, the Italian economist he figured out that in every country he studied, twenty percent of the people owned eighty percent of wealth, and eighty percent of the people owned twenty percent of the wealth, and hopefully everybody sort of knows that. It's always been a, a way of analyzing the past, but it actually can be a way of, of, of predicting the future. So for example, if you put up a web page and you sell 100 units of one product for $100, and maybe you're just in startup mode and you know the, the company doesn't even have a logo or anything, but you invented some widget and you sold 100 units for $100 each, and that's a total of $10,000, you can extrapolate from that how many you could sell for $1,000, how many you could sell for 10,000, how many you could sell for 100,000. You can calibrate to one part of the market and then extrapolate to the whole entire market. And usually you will be right. And I've used this again and again and again with people, and it almost always turns out to be right. Um, and it, it's also, also diagnostic for, okay, so what should be working that's not, or what is working just fine and there's no fixing it? Like it's already doing as well as you could reasonably hope it to do so that you can focus your energy on something else where you're not going to get a diminishing return. One of the ideas I got from the book that I, I really, really value, especially in business, is to stop thinking in averages. Can you explain? how that concept applies to business. So average is pounded into everybody. Uh, you, uh, th there's no time when you're more impressionable than when you've just taken a test and the professor is handing it back to you with a red pen all over it, right? You know, oh, I, you know, I got a 73 out of 100 and I got this wrong. I got, I, there's still, you know, tests that I took in, in college that I can still remember what I got wrong, right? Mm -hmm. and now, usually in my classes anyway, the guy would draw a bell curve and he'd say, okay, well, you know, the average was 81 and everybody that was between uh, 75 and 81 got a C plus and everybody, you know, and, and they would they would do that all lot. So everybody, everybody, Everybody's accustomed to averages, but okay, so let's say we're taking a test. Let's say it's a science class and there's a bunch of kids and they got an average of 81. Well, average is almost completely irrelevant to what's going to happen in the world with those kids, okay? The average kid is not going to study science in college. He's not going to become a scientist. Um, and the average grade of the class tells you almost nothing that's actually interesting. The most interesting thing is who are the most 
capable people in the science class and how much science can they do. And so I created this thing called an 80-20 curve. So we all know what a bell curve looks like. Well, an 80-20 curve, it looks like an exponential curve, except in, instead of just going up and up and up to the right, it goes up and up and up vertically. Okay, so it, it, it goes almost perfectly straight, almost infinitely high. And then you put everybody, uh, you rank them from bottom to top. And the top one, the, like the, probably the top one or two kids in a science class will do more science than all of the other students combined. Mm -hmm. In fact, sometimes they'll do 10 times more science than all the other students combined. That's what's interesting. That's what you need to know. And so average conceals the extremities. And then people start talking about standard deviations and deviations from the mean. And that's a, that's a clunky way of getting around the fact that average is almost always the wrong piece of information in any situation you want to uh, analyze. The, the only thing good about average is that everybody understands what it is. But you actually have to switch it around in order to make real sense of it. Perry, let's just go through that, taking that same principle, but instead of a, a science class, let's look at it as you've got 10 salespeople. And yes. you're now looking at what they've sold in the last quarter, and you're reviewing to help set goals for the next quarter. It is just a, a miscarriage of justice and, and really poor business to look at the average and apply that average as a standard to the highest performers as it is to the lowest performers. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Okay, so let's say you've got a company and you got 10 salespeople and your sales is a million dollars a month, okay? And so the average sale, sales per salesperson is $100,000 a month, okay? Well, the amount that they sell, if you put it on a bell curve, it's almost meaningless because here's what's actually going to happen. If I'm selling a million dollars a month, one of my salespeople is going to sell half. One of them is going to sell literally four or 500,000. One of them is going to sell two or 300,000. And the other eight of the 10 are going to sell the rest. That is almost guaranteed to happen. In fact, it would be a complete statistical anomaly if two out of the two out of the 10 salespeople didn't outsell the other eight two or three will outsell the other seven or eight and really what you need to do is you need to get rid of the bottom ones and put all of your energy in the top ones because if if you've got a salesperson who's selling half a million dollars a month and you you've, you're spending your time babysitting all these other people if you stop paying those other people their bases and you hire people to support the star salesperson to do their expense reports and to manage their shoebox full of receipts and to book their travel and drive them around and to help them with their presentations or to do their PowerPoints or whatever, you will, you'll boost that half a million dollar person to a million and you'll spend less money doing it. And if somebody came to you and said, oh no, Perry, through really careful um, management and sales management, we've been able to get all 10 of our salespeople to be selling pretty close to the average. <laughs> what, what would you say to someone well, who comes to you and says, that's what we've done? 
Well, congratulations for making water flow uphill, but how much money did it cost you to do that, right? Like, you know, the Chicago River, they did a bunch of incredibly difficult engineering like 50 years ago, and they made it flow the other way, okay? Like, well, you know, it is possible to defy the laws of nature, but look how much effort it takes you to do it. Like, I, I guarantee you that if, if that's the case, and if that's your situation, then you're leaving 60 or 70% of the money on the table, and you're crippling the best ones. And in fact, you're almost certainly getting in the way of the best ones um, in order to make them not do better than the average, because sales and marketing and really everything in business is, a, is all about outliers. And about leveraging things to get that exponential benefit, right? Well, right. And, and so the, the first rule of 80-20 is that you have to decide what you're not going to do. So my, my favorite 80-20 story is my friend John Paul Mendoza dropped out of high school when he was 17. He hitchhiked to Las Vegas and he became a professional gambler. Like this is what he wanted to do. He thought this was really glamorous. And so he is living by his wits. He's got a fake ID. Um, he's going into casinos and he's finding people and he's playing poker with them. And after about a month of this, he's like, dang, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. And he went, he, he, he wanted to improve his skills. And so he found a gambling book store, like with gambling books. And he was roaming around in there and he runs into this guy in the bookstore. And he starts talking to this guy. He, he finds out that this guy runs a professional gambling ring. In fact, to be honest, this guy was a professional criminal, okay? Well, John th thought that sounded exciting and sexy. And so they start talking. And John says, okay, so um, could you teach me how to do what you do? And he says, the guy's name is Rob. Rob says, well, for a percentage of your winnings, I can teach you how to do what I do. And so they shake on it. And they agree. And so jump in the Jeep, John, we're going for a ride. So John jumps in the Jeep and they're, they're riding down the highway. And John says, okay, how do I win more poker games? And Rob says, the way you win more poker games is you need to find people who are going to lose. Okay. And those people are called marks. You don't want to play other professional gamblers. You don't want to play people who are good. You want to find people who are bad. And John says, okay, so how do I find people that are bad? And he goes, here, let me show you. And they pull into the parking lot of a strip club and they walk into a strip club. And so there's women and there's rock and roll and there's loud music and there's bikers and there's people drinking and all this stuff going on in this loud nightclub. And Rob sits down with John at a table and Rob always carried a sawed off shotgun inside his jacket everywhere he went. And he pulls out the sawed-off shotgun. He holds it under the table. He opens the chamber, and then he slams it shut. So it goes, Shh! And a few people in the club, even with all this rock and roll and everything, they hear that noise, and they look around, like, what is going on here? Like, there are these biker guides. They're actually reaching for guns inside their cowboy boots, okay? And, you know, they're looking really scary. And the club owner comes over. And he goes, hey, what's going on over here? And Rob says, 
never mind us. I just teaching the lad a lesson. I'm not going to cause any trouble here. Just, you know, it's all right. And he says to John, John, did you see those guys that turned around when they heard that noise? And John goes, yeah. And he goes, don't play poker with them. They're not marks. Play poker with everybody else. Well, that's called racking the shotgun. In, in 80-20 sales and marketing, I call it racking the shotgun. And everything you do is racking the shotgun. If you send an email and some people open it, some people don't, that's racking the shotgun. Some people click on the link and some people don't, and that's racking the shotgun. Some people sign up for the webinar and some people don't. Some people ask for the free sample. Some people ask for a quote. Some people buy, some people don't. All of it is racking the shotgun. And the first thing you gotta figure out is, who am I not gonna talk to? Who am I not gonna pay attention to? And in the case of the strip club, John had to decide, okay, I'm not gonna play poker with all these biker dudes. I can play poker with all these average people, but I have to figure out who the biker dudes are first and eliminate them from consideration. Right Now, sometimes it goes one way, sometimes it goes the other way. So, so if, if John wanted to have a skeet shooting retreat, then maybe he'd want those biker dudes, right? And then he would pick those guys, right? It depends on what you're trying to do. Um, but you have to eliminate. And, and sales and marketing is not a convincing people process. It's an elimination process first. So that's really important. It's elimination process. And in order to really get the 80-20 principle, the philosophy, the rules here, what's important is to adopt an, a, an approach and embrace the philosophy of experimenting, designing smart experiments and knowing what happens, whether something is true or false. And then you make your decisions as to how to respond accordingly. Isn't that fair? That's right. And this is going on around you all the time. People are are constantly selecting themselves or deselecting themselves as all kinds of shotguns get racked all the time. So every time Trump does something, it racks a shotgun and there's certain people that respond one way and certain people that respond another way. People subscribe to magazines, people sign up for webinars, people go to seminars, people buy businesses, people buy products. This stuff is going on all the time. And so one of, the, one of the adages from direct marketing that is driven by 80-20 is a buyer is a buyer is a buyer. People who buy, buy. People who don't buy, don't buy. And what most marketers, most salespeople do is they obsess over what didn't happen because they're like, man, you know, if I could just talk to this person a little longer, if I could explain this a little better, I could convince them and I could make, I could, this would make so much sense. This would be so great. They would be such a good customer, but yeah. their behavior doesn't match it. And, and we get our ego all invested. A lot of times salespeople think that they're supposed to sell as in convince and persuade and cajole and, and all of that. That's rarely what selling really is. Selling is harnessing natural processes to enable what already wants to happen to actually happen. Yeah, I think that's important for everyone to really soak in. Marketing allows people to 
take the steps that, that would naturally happen. It's really like creating a channel for that water to flow according to natural laws of, of physics and nature. Well, that's right. That's right. And, and so if, if you look at traffic in your town on the roads, it, it's 80-20. 80% of the traffic runs on 20% of the roads, but 80% of the 80% runs on 20% of the 20%. So that means 64% of the traffic runs on 4% of the roads. And then you, you can do it again. And 50% of the traffic runs on 1% of the roads. And it keeps going, it keeps going. I, I read somewhere that something like 25% of all transportation occurs on the interstate system. And of course, that's only like 15 or 20, you know, major highways, right? But they, they have literally a fourth of all of the transportation and traffic that's going on. And so there's, there's huge levers in everything. So everything is like this files on your hard drive and defects of products that you ship out and support tickets from problem customers and support tickets from really desirable customers. And so usually you can greatly improve your business by only changing 1% of it. And that's what it's really about. It's an incredibly powerful lever. In fact, what, what happens when people read 80-20 sales and marketing is they say, oh my word, I never saw this before, and now I see it everywhere. I can literally look out the window, and I can see 80-20s all over the place. I never used to see that. Well, if you're a consultant, if you're a CEO, if you're a manager, if you're a marketer, if you're a salesperson, if all of a sudden you see the levers where you didn't see them before, where most people didn't see them, you have a inherent advantage over everybody. What are some of the ways that are easy to test to help segment markets and people's buying decisions that might not be apparent to people now. But if you share with us maybe an example of how someone who uses this, who, who's gone through some of the 80-20 sales and marketing training, what are some of the low-hanging fruit that people could reach for to get more of a sense of how to apply it in their own business? So here's a story from a week ago. Uh, one of my customers, her name is Shannon, and she is a a CPA in Michigan. And I taught her the 2120 rule. And here's, I need to explain what that is. The 2120 rule says that 120% of your profits come from the top 20% of your customer. And then the bottom end of your customers sucks money they actually, you actually lose money on them, and it brings your 120% down to 100, okay? So it's like 20% of your customers make a lot of money, 60% just break even, and 20% lose money. And if you get rid of the 20% that are losing you money, you'll actually make more money and do 20% less work. Here, let me jump in. I, I want to just detail that a little bit further so that people really get how losses occur. It's not that they're paying less, particularly for a service, I think, but more so that they're more demanding. It takes more effort for a CPA to get all their information in. It costs more time. They require more customer support and handholding. Those are the ways that it erodes the margin. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Yes, yes. And by the way, it's not just true about customers. It's true of products and product lines and territories and 
you can slice it all kinds of different ways. But just for simplification, let's just talk about customers. Right. So it's almost a dead certainty that three, five, ten percent of your customers are just bleeding money out of your bank account, okay? Because they 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 were they're so high maintenance, right? And and most people have never been given permission to just get rid of the customers. And so she she heard this at one of our roundtable meetings. So she calls up her office manager and she says, "Run me a report." and do a cost accounting on all of our customers and tell me who the high maintenance ones were. And they came up with this whole list of customers who were costing them, they realized about 50 to 100% more than what they're paying. And so she sent them all a letter and she said, hey, we've, we've been reviewing our accounts in order to service your account, we're going to have to double your rates for next year. And if, you're not comfortable with that, no problem. We'll, we'll help you, we'll refer you to another accounting firm and just let us know what you want to do. And um, she sent out that letter and a bunch of customers didn't respond and they won't be customers next year. And quite a few of them said, oh, well, okay, I guess we'll pay twice the fees. They didn't want to deal with the hassle, they like her, whatever. And so she got rid of, uh, half of the unprofitable customers and she turned the other half from unprofitable to profitable immediately makes her business better. In fact, what I just told you is the fastest way to make a business better. Now the, the here's what the trick is though. Most people don't actually know, but you know, it's funny. I, I talked about this being an accountant. I gave a talk to a room full of CPAs a couple of years ago. And I said, how many of you have that problem client and they just chew up all your time and they're totally disorganized and they don't really pay you that much money? How many of you know that client? And like everybody raises their hand. They said, okay, keep your hand up. They said, listen, I, Perry Marshall, best-selling author, I give you permission to cut those people loose. And you don't have to be mean about it. You don't have to be nasty. I mean, we can call it firing a customer, but really you can just, you know, set them free or however you want to think about it. You don't, don't have to be unkind, but there's no rule that says you have to take these people's money. There's no rule that says you have to do these people's taxes in your life. And I could just see the relief on everybody's faces. They're like, yeah. And you know, there's probably a lot of customers that you're losing money on, but there's, there's gotta be a few where you never know it. And everyone listening has your permission to do the same, Perry? Everybody listening has my permission to do the same. You should, you should regularly do this. Another version of it, Jack Welch, a GE, you know, turned GE around 20 years ago. His policy was fire the lowest 20% bottom performers of the employees every year. Now, that sounds really draconian, but it does work. Absolutely works. And it wasn't a surprise to the employees. Everybody knew that that was the policy going in so that they could adopt their behavior and performance to avoid that fate. Well, that, that's right. And it means some people are just going to quit before they get fired, which is good, right? And look, you know, I've fired more people than I've had quit working for me. And in some cases, they were very good friends. One guy I let go, he was one of my probably five or 10 best friends in the whole world. 
and he was great when he started, but he and the job and the company just grew apart. And this happens. Like, we need to remove the judgment. Bob was not a bad guy. I still like him and, and everything like that. And we're, and we're still friends. We just had to sit down and have a, a frank conversation, say, the position you've been in and where you're going as a person are headed in two separate directions. We still like you, but we just don't think this works as well as it used to. And we need to make a change here. Was it hard? Yes. It was hard for everybody. But this is just how life is. You can't just keep doing the same thing. You can't just keep people around because they've been around for a long time. I mean, that's, that's the problem with a, like a 10 year based or a, you know, how long have they worked here based system? Like that, that isn't any kind of measure of the person's value. I mean, it, it could be, I don't even think there's that much correlation just because somebody's worked there a long time. doesn't mean they're valuable. I get that. And I think that's important for everyone to review. Um, many small businesses fail to do that. Don't they Perry? We, we work and, and we have people who are working with us, but not in larger organizations. They have regular performance reviews. I think small businesses overlook that too much. And it's an opportunity, not just for growth of the business, but many times people who are working there and they know that it's not working and they just need something to change in order to make that decision that's going to be best for themselves and their family as well. Some of the biggest breakthroughs I've had in my life were after I got fired. I, I've gotten fired from um, five different jobs and two of those firings were major turning points that ended up being very positive for me but they were very painful when they happened and you know pruning is a part of life like anybody who owns a vineyard and grows grapes can tell you the only way you get the nice big fat grapes is if you prune all the branches that are doing lousy it's just part of it and when you when you understand that you accept it okay this is the reality this is how the world works i'm good with this i'm i'm willing to do it 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 makes everything better there's a lot of people listening you are struggling to meet payroll you have to call your wife and say hey we're only getting a half paycheck this time because you know all the stuff is going on and this deal didn't come through and the real reason that you're struggling is because you're carrying too heavy of a burden. You think you have to carry all these employees and you really don't. It, it is possible to get 70% as much work done with only 30% as much staff. It requires surgery to do that, but it's possible. You know, it could be you need to get rid of one person and their $5,000 a month that you're paying them uh, goes to the bottom line. Oh, here's another thing. Uh, one, one of my longtime clients is Nancy Schlesinger of Vinehouse, which is a recruitment agency. Nancy told me about three or four years ago that the cost of a bad hire is 14 times their salary. I thought that was kind of extreme. And I said, oh, I think it's probably like four times. And then a couple years later, one of her employees left and uh, well, I won't go into the detail, but we found some mistakes that she had made. And those mistakes were many times her salary. They were vendors that had been overpaid. It was stuff like that. And I was like, oh, she's right. It really is true. There, 
you, having the wrong person in a position is catastrophic. Yeah, I hope everyone can review and think about that with people who they've either let go in the past or people who might not be pulling their own weight and you know might be going in a different direction right now. Say, Perry, are you ready for the my quest for the best lightning round? Yes, sir. All right. Now, you live a, a really deliberate life and you think things through. What's one of the things you do on a daily basis for your success routine to be at your best that many people might not know about? I journal every morning for at least an hour before I do anything else, before I go into my email or get on my cell phone or react. And I, th and I think this is a really important, this is the most valuable habit I have cultivated in the last 10 years is that. And so by the time I'm done, I feel very centered. I've got my day figured out. I've got myself sorted out and I feel like I have my gladiator suit on and then I'm ready to go out and do the day. And I, I never miss it. I always do it. Do you have prompt questions you start with? Is there any structure to it or you just free write? I just free write. There's a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, and it's a manual on how to do this. And uh, I've got a lot of customers who do this as well. They find it very powerful. It's very counterintuitive. You wouldn't think this, is, this would work, but people that do it swear by it. What's your favorite way to get unstuck? Do you have a tool or system you use for staying on track and productive? If I'm stuck on something, I go for a walk, like if it's a little thing. If I'm stuck on something big, I go out and do something recreational or something uh, artistic. Um, a few months ago, I was grinding away on a sales promotion and it was a Saturday night and it was already late. And I said, you know what? I'm going to a concert in Millennial Park, Millennium Park in Chicago. And uh, I went there and I got the idea I was looking for in the concert. And, um, you know, a lot of people like that kind of goes against their Protestant work ethic to do something like that. But look, the fact is, in the 20th century, you know, there's a million things that you can do that just require labor. But the 20th century is not driven by labor. It's driven by brilliant ideas and brilliant execution. And even how to execute the idea is an idea. And um, really, most people are hypnotized and lacking for inspiration. Uh, they're not lacking for work or effort. And no doubt, you, like many other successful entrepreneurs, um, have received advice, coaching, and support from lots of people. But when I ask you, what's the best advice you've ever received? What's the idea that pops to mind? Well, when I was in Amway a long time ago, which was a kind of a pink Kool-Aid, you know, cult experience, they said, winners never quit and quitters never win. And so I was just doggedly persistent. And um, the, I guess the advice that I got was the reversal of that. And it was fail fast is figure out as fast as possible whether or not something will work and then stop doing it. And that's very, very 80-20. And my last question for now, Perry, what is it that people misunderstand the most about the 80-20 rule as applied to marketing and sales? 
in all the experience of people talking with you and the lectures and presentations you give in the, the round tables that you lead, what is it that you find that makes the biggest difference for people when you correct this misunderstanding? Well, they think that it's just a business rule of thumb. It's actually the most fundamental law of cause and effect. Now, I'm really serious when I say that. It is the most fundamental law of cause and effect. So I'm saying, what I'm actually saying is most people don't even understand cause and effect correctly. If, if you're obsessed with average, you don't understand cause and effect. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and, and, and so it's the size of craters on the moon and it's sap running through trees and it's, it's water flowing in rivers and it's the Grand Canyon. So 8020 is everywhere. It is all over the place. And most people have never, like most people, if I said, I want you to look out the window and I want you to point to 10 things that you see up there that are 8020. Most people couldn't come up with more than one or two. When you can come up with 10, it will completely change the way that you do everything, not just sales and marketing. It'll change how you manage your time. It'll change how you manage your family. It'll change how you manage your friendships, your personal development. It's a really big deal. Well, Perry, you've been so generous in sharing your insights and experiences here today on My Quest for the Best. I just want to thank you so much for bringing to mind uh, the great lessons of Thomas Edison, the inventor, of sharing with us how the 80-20 law can be used diagnostically, not just to explain how things have happened, how the average conceals extremes and how we need to look and see what activities and people and outcomes that we want to nurture, give attention and resources to. And, and the examples you shared with the CPA in Michigan, Shannon, the idea of racking the shotgun as a way of eliminating different segments of a market or group that you're appealing to, and the value of experimentation. All these ideas were great for you to share with us, and I'm so appreciative of you for doing that today on My Quest for the Best. Thank you, Bill. It was great to be here. It's an honor. Thank you. And Perry, for people to find out more about the work that you do, where would, where would you suggest they stop by? Go to perrymarshall.com, P-E-R-R-Y-M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L.com, and uh, click on the 80-20 tab. And uh, I, I would also suggest that you subscribe to an email series called the 30-Day Street MBA, which is right on the homepage. And we will take you on an 80-20 adventure. Wow. I hope people take you up on that offer to join the 30-Day Street MBA. And I hope that you have a great day. Perry, thanks again so much for joining me. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.